The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, so we've started to look at views and the Dharma view of views that they're not pointing at some absolute truth but that they're best used as a sort of practical, pragmatic way to see what we're doing and to, to see how the mind is working with experience and how it's creating experience, interpreting experience, fabricating experience in many cases. So as we get to see these views, there are a couple that the Buddha says are practically useful to have as frames of reference in our lives. And one of them is the view that Kim mentioned that actions have consequences and that we can look at our intentions and through uh, cultivating wholesome intentions and wholesome actions, things will go better for us. The other view is called the view of the Four Noble Truths. So you've probably heard the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and I'll certainly go over it again. But what I want to talk about here is in what way is that a view? How is that a perspective that we can bring to bear on our lives? So the first of the Four Noble Truths is that the truth of suffering, this word dukkha, which is sometimes I think better left untranslated because it covers a whole range of experience from what you might consider suffering, stress, anxiety, dissatisfaction, discontent, just something that's short of a complete peace and ease with how things are. You know, maybe it could be a little better, maybe it's a total disaster. However you're feeling about it, it's something, it's some flavor of dukkha. So we're all conscious, everyone is to some degree, death, illness, old age, loss, misfortune, meaninglessness, at the very least unpleasant sensations, right? Lack of perfect control over what happens. This stuff happens. And this is the truth of the first noble truth. And in a way it's refreshing simply to have that out in the open and acknowledge that yes, this is an inherent, these things are inherent parts of life and how things are. And usually the wish to relieve some form of dukkha and to achieve some form of lasting happiness is often the unseen motive behind most of what we do, most of human activity, trying to figure something out, trying to understand things, how we act and relate in the world is usually motivated by trying to, in some way, overcome this dukkha. So the Dharma, the essence of the Dharma teaching is that by constantly striving to control circumstances and events in the world and control what happens in some way, that we are not noticing that this is actually impossible in a lasting way and it comes at a very high cost in stress, anxiety and frustration. The more we're always looking to fixing, manipulating or denying things as a, as a way of working with suffering. So in a way the first step, the task that's associated with the first noble truth is to face it, to understand it, to begin to recognize when you're in that experience. Something is happening that's not the way you like it and some flavor of dukkha or suffering is arising. I came across this interesting list um, in another course I was taking of ways that people tend to 
respond when some kind of suffering is going on. Feeling impatient and rushing or pushing it, fearing it, resisting it, trying to control it, rationalizing it, analyzing it. And let's have it be just the situation. I mean, you may not even recognize that there's suffering going on. Diagnosing it, doubting it, discounting it, dismissing it, trying to get rid of it, trying to solve or fix it, arguing with it, withdrawing from it, reassuring yourself, negotiating with it, forcing a choice, having an opinion about it, criticizing yourself, criticizing other people, blaming, guilt, shame. This whole range of human activity is how we typically respond in the face of some flavor of dukkha. So the first task is to to recognize it, to know it, to understand it. This is dukkha. That's the Buddha in several places says that wise attention and wise view starts with recognizing this right now. Oh, this is dukkha. Okay? So when you can first recognize that you're under the influence of dissatisfaction with things as they are, then you're, you're bringing that view of the first of the Four Noble Truths to bear on the situation simply by recognizing that this is a common human experience, not something uniquely wrong with you, that you're not able to fix and control this. Then the second noble truth is that the cause of dukkha is craving. Craving and clinging we often put together. Craving and clinging. So this, I want to spend a lot of time on this. The cause of suffering, that's a pretty big claim, right? That, that the Dharma has figured out the cause of suffering and that it's actually an inside job that it's something in the way that our minds are processing experience that is contributing this element of suffering All right. and so um, a big part of this second truth is getting the felt sense of what's meant by this suffering the part of this that we can work with so it's, it's not right to say that all, all wanting or all planning or all forms of intending are necessarily suffering. That perhaps at some deep level of letting go into states of concentration and total release is not a moment when you're intending anything. But you can, every day simply planning to have supper or something is not, not necessarily dukkha. But getting this felt sense of what's meant by what we're adding to it. So um, there's a sense in which craving of a sort is the cause of further suffering because it's this very strong force that keeps us looking in the wrong direction. The minute that kicks in, we disconnect from what's really happening right now and we begin to fixate on some idea of how things should be different. And when we, as soon as our mind shifts into holding on to this idea of how things should be, then there's, it has a whole ripple effect in the way our minds work, the way our breath and body works. There gets to be some contraction that's necessary to hold on to an idea. The attention begins to shrink and fixate on just that one idea and it begins to filter out all kinds of alternatives and see only the part of that that's caught our attention. Um, It really leads to this experience of frustration and loss and disappointment and dissatisfaction because it keeps us investing in the if only, if only, or if only not. In another sense, which we can see, 
the minute craving begins, that is dukkha. That, that feeling of wanting something. And it's not just, it's wanting, it's that really addictive have to have it where you're really staking your well-being on something happening or not happening. That's where it's easiest to see to begin with anyway. So when you find yourself in a state of suffering, taking the view of the Four Noble Truths, instead of immediately rushing to fix it or to think there's something wrong with you or something wrong with somebody else, you can identify that you're in a state of suffering and see if you can identify the craving that's bound to be in you somewhere, that real attachment. What are you believing has to happen or must not happen? I find that a useful question. You know, what, what? Because usually that has gotten all out of proportion in your mind to what it could really, what it could, what its potential to provide either happiness or, you know, lasting misery has gotten all out of, out of proportion. So, um, the Dharma teaches that there are three kinds of craving and clinging. The most obvious is clinging to sense pleasures, or you could say clinging to not, not discomfort, you know, preferring comfort over discomfort. So how can you investigate if that seems to be the flavor that you're working with? Well, you can see the f- just recognizing this fixation. You know, maybe there's something you've decided you want, a new toy of some kind or some food, or that you're afraid that some pain means something that, it's going to last forever. So if it's something that you want, you can really notice how the mind is beginning to focus on only the positive aspects of that and, and imagining how perfect it's going to be and how you're going to love it and how it's going to be important to you forever. And then you can really reflect back maybe on how many times have you fallen for this sort of thing before. You know, maybe you have a kitchen full of appliances or a garage full of toys or a closet full of clothes. and you know, maybe, maybe that was the sweater that's going to do it, and now this is. So, you know, just, just taking it at a very small level, you can begin to see how tricky the mind is falling over and over for this time. This is going to do it. This is going to do it. This is the one that's going to do it. Maybe it's relationships or jobs, you know, bigger scenarios. This is going to do it. So you can start to see how, in a way, unreliable the mind gets under the influence of craving. Um, maybe the ultimate uh, antidote to sensual craving is developing a deeper meditation practice with concentration where you really begin to let go and experience deep inner joy, states that are very satisfying, and that, that actually begins to counterbalance the um, you know, more or less built-in craving for sense pleasures and physical security that we have when we really develop our meditation practice. The second kind of craving is called the craving for becoming. And this is a little harder to understand, but it's so pervasive. Almost every time you're wanting something, you're picturing a little image of yourself in the future being the one who has that thing, or being the one who's in that situation or being seen to be a certain way, or then, then they'll love me, then I'll be able to you know, f- be seen to be a wonderful person because I am able to do this thing or have this thing. So it's this constant self-imaging. 
self-imaging, self-imaging, and imaging of yourself in relation to things is this, uh, this craving for becoming. So you might ask yourself, you know, it's really helpful to start to notice when you're picturing yourself in relation to something that you want or don't want. And, or, what, or conversely, what are you afraid of? It's been so interesting to me to see what relationships am I picturing when I'm anxious about something? I'm, I'm, I'm always picturing like one of a few certain people come seeing me mess up, you know, and it's in their eyes that I'm messing up. And this is something that the mind has constructed. You know, in my case, there's essentially zero chance that these people will actually find out what it is that I'm so worried about. It's just mental habit that it's completely making this up and that yet that's where the pain comes from is how, how I might be seen. And so you're watching that the mind is actually making the experiences that are the actual... That's where the actual clenching in the stomach, clenching in the chest comes from, is from the mental proliferation that comes from what you believe it implies if you do or don't get this thing. So you might ask yourself if you want something or you want to be seen in order, in order to what? Why do I want this? I want this in order to, and it'll probably be some form of becoming, in order to be the kind of person who has this kind of thing or who knows this or you know, be safe in some future situation. So the third kind of craving and clinging is to non-becoming which is in a way to escapism, to denial, to making something stop. You know, this has a whole range of really you just want out of here. You don't want to see it. You don't want to know. You want to, you know, plunge into the television or the food or the drugs or whatever, go to sleep. You know, in some way the mind wants to shut down and not see it. And again, you've built up probably a, a huge image of how this is going to last forever and mean something really significantly terrible to you and you can really look at how the mind is is um, creating a large part of what it is that you're trying to escape from so when we're really caught up in suffering it's like and clinging and craving like this it's like somehow the gears of hope and fear have, they've gotten themselves enmeshed in some imaginary scenario about what might happen. And um, we're really engaged with several forms of basic misperception about how uh, experience is. So we're te- we tend to solidify things. We tend to assume that they're going to be solid and lasting and just the way we picture them. You know, so just even in terms of wanting a situation you know you're you're always picturing the good parts of it or if it's something you're afraid of you're picturing the bad parts of it you're thinking that's the way it's going to be that it's going to be like that and you're really losing touch with that moment to moment attention and the fact that what's happening right now is the generation of suffering so we're taking things to be solid lasting going to be like this forever we're taking things to be me or mine. We're wanting to know what does this situation mean about me, you know, as I said. Or the implication that things are mine, that I should be able to control it, that I should be able to fix this. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which taking 
things personally contributes greatly to suffering. And it all winds up being taking what is in fact suffering to be not suffering because what we're doing is we're fixating on this idea of how we want things to be and we're really not noticing what that's doing for us in the present moment, how that's stirring up suffering. We're ignoring the dukkha side effect of craving most of the time. So I was just trying to decide between two health care plans the other day. I'm coming up on Medicare and you know, I just plunged right into this and pretty soon I noticed that the mind the way I was going about it was making up worst case scenarios for one and then worst case scenarios for the other and you know, picturing all these ways I might get sick and die and imagining that one of these plans or the other of these plans would be able to do something about it and I was really getting quite uptight, you know, and it took me a while to realize, well, I'm just sitting here creating suffering about this by imagining in my mind entirely the worst case scenarios of it. So could I back up, notice that this is entirely imaginary, that I've taken a situation that could be for the rest of the world quite a, a, an amazing boon, here's two health plans to choose from, you know, gosh. and. <laughs> I, you know, there's, there are other ways to look at it. There are way, there's also knowing that I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in the future. And that the most reliable insurance plan you can have is to practice right now with not creating suffering. You know? And so I've, I've often looked at the Dharma as my blanket health insurance policy. My insurance policy that, I, that is good for any situation is to come right back now and look at how, how am I relating to what's happening. So, the second noble truth. Then the third noble truth is to actually realize the cessation of suffering. And we can see that in moments like when we turn from worst case scenarioing and we begin to realize that that's what we're doing. Can begin to see and appreciate in small moments letting go of our views of things, letting go of our clinging and grasping, and just seeing that little bit of lightening up. What we're doing is we're actually shifting from the content of what's happening, this idea of a thing or a situation out there or whatever you're craving and fearing. You're turning to look at the internal processes of the mind and how the mind is is responding with feeling and bodily sensations what perceptions is it creating you know we even identifying something as necessarily a particular thing is maybe it's questionable you know it may not be the only way to see it it may not be the only way to see that situation and then all the reactivity that follows on from that perception so if you can begin to shift from your focus from the external situation to what is the mind doing right now? What is the internal activity going on? Then you're heading toward being able to let go of the suffering of that. I came across a thing once where it was comparing uh, an analogy to practice where children play with toys, watch the toys, but the mother watches the child Right? Your mother, the mother is not interested in the toys the way the child is. The mother is interested in how the child is learning and developing and how the child is playing with the toys. So our Dharma practice in a way is like 
watching, the mind gets interested in what's going on and what might happen and everything. But our, mind, our Dharma practice is watching the mind. Well, how is the mind working with this experience? You know, what's it learning from it? What's it adding on to it? What's it buying into? So eventually, if we watch carefully enough, insights begin to arise that really we, we are nothing other than this flow of experience. And that's true now and it will be true in the future when we're imagining that certain things will happen that we won't be able to deal with. And suffering is due to this fruitless effort to hold on to this flow of experience and make it conform to our ideas about it. These lasting things and situations. Imagine thinking that a certain job is going to be a certain way. You know, what is a job except minute after minute, of moment after moment, of people after people and situations, you know, day after day. It's not one particular way. A relationship is not one particular way. So what we're learning is how to be much more in the moment, aware of what, how our minds are and bodies are processing what's happening. So the fourth noble truth then is, is to cultivate the path that leads to the experience of the first three. So there's suffering, the, cra- the cause of suffering is something that we can look at in our own minds and then there's a possible release from suffering. And when you see that a little bit, then you begin to see, okay, you know, you have some confidence that this path is the way to work with it. I, I heard an example once where somebody had a summer job of tearing up a concrete driveway and it took them forever to figure out how to, what the right tool was and how to go about it and how to get a chunk out. They finally got the first chunk out and then they knew they knew how to do it. You know, it might take the rest of the summer, it probably did, but they knew that they knew how to do it. So when you know for a fact, when you've really seen in the moment some kind of suffering and you've realized what, what within you is causing that clinging to it and you've experienced letting it go, then you know that you know how to work with this. And we need to make use of these insights and we need to practice them in more and more of our areas of life. We were talking earlier about how you can see something, but then you need to see it again and again. And, oh, that applies here and there's another layer beneath it. And it's one thing to realize something intellectually and it's very important. That's the first step. You know, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't really understand it. But then you can see working through it emotionally, working through it at the level of deep instincts, this is, this is our practice. So keeping this perspective of the right view in mind, that the purpose of our practice is to learn how to free ourselves from suffering by watching our internal processing. It's very important as you start to engage in this program and start to look at all these, pro- these factors. Because we're going to be asking you to take a look. And, you know, eight months might sound like a long time, but it's, pretty, it's a pretty quick tour of various aspects of your life. And you could easily get bogged down in thinking, oh, you know, I, have, I really have a lot of work to do on my speech and I'm, I'm not able to be, live up to perfect ideals in action. So really bear in mind that the, the, the purpose of this whole thing is to suffer less. As we were talking earlier about balance with, you know, overdoing it and trying to 
overdoing it in giving and compassion. So always looking at this is about ending suffering and that includes your suffering and that includes the way you're going about doing anything. You know, so we how can how are we um, keeping a sense of ease in mind and not getting hung up on self-improvement or world improvement projects that turn into striving and clinging and, and not so much investigating the inner causes. So eventually there can be a sort of radical shift that can come about. Maybe you have some intuitions of it. Maybe, maybe you see it. The longer we practice... There's a shift from me and my problems, the sense of the world as you as a separate person who has problems with the world. And there comes to be an appreciation of, wow, the mind, the mind is creating experience and it's really quite a mystery. What is, what is experience and how amazing it is to be this process that is taking things in and putting things out all the time. Mysteries of existence way beyond the mind and its ordinary, you know, machinations with things. So the more steadily and devotedly that you can orient your life around this view of really understanding what it is to be alive and a human being with this mind and this body, how to use intention, attention, skillfully, this habit will carry you through life. I came across this thing yesterday... um, I, I, I came across this Dharma teacher named Rob Berbia who has a new book out called Seeing That Freeze that I started to look at. I haven't read it enough to give a book recommendation yet. But I looked him up on the internet and I discovered that he's struggling with cancer and he's just had a, a serious operation and he's facing chemotherapy. And uh, so I just uh, I thought this was a lovely paragraph from his uh, little blog online. He says, I know some of you are wondering how I'm doing and how practice might be helping. Well, briefly, so far, so good. I feel in my spirit deeply at peace with the possibility that I may die in the not-too-distant future. I hope it won't be for quite a while. I definitely don't want to die, but I still sense and have access to a perception of a timeless dimension to everything. The fruits of practice, I'm sure, and that makes a huge difference. I feel, too, on reflection that I have lived my life and made choices as fully as I could from my heart's truth and deepest longings, allowing and encouraging what is wanted to come through, so I have no regrets. I feel also very strongly that I have received so many blessings, so many graces in this life, and even now through these challenges. Something in my heart just keeps bowing to it all. I just thought that was a beautiful expression of what a life, a life on this path, how it can carry you even up to, you know, the end of life, potentially. And uh, obviously he's done a lot of bearing these views in mind and working with them over a long time. So those are my thoughts on practicing with the Four Noble Truths as a pragmatic frame of reference, point of view to keep in mind in this practice and in your life. And now we'd like to have another breakout session. So if you would get in groups of four again, and maybe a different group of four, so you meet some more people. Okay? And we'll have time for questions after this.
So I'm going to say the question and then let's just have a minute of silence so you can reflect for a minute, okay, before we start. A little easier on the first person to have a minute to think about this. So I think if you think about it, that you've all had an experience of have feeling suffering about something, really caught up in thinking something has to happen or something doesn't have to happen, and then somehow letting go of that, seeing another possibility, and feeling, feeling what? Feeling a little bit of relief around that? So it's so useful to really think back in your life, a little time when you thought you had to have something, you know, or you thought something had to not happen, and then it turned out, okay, you can, there's another way, you know. And what was the feeling when you realized that, oh, I've let go of this, it's okay. See if you can think of a situation. Okay, so let's start with a person whose uh, back is toward me most nearly in your group. We'll quit picking on hair, quit picking on hair for a change. <laughs> okay, and again about three minutes apiece. <laughs> okay, well, we'd love to hear some of what you came up with in that discussion. Really, it's a, it's a service to share. It might help, might spark some memory of somebody else's of something similar. So please, here's somebody. Okay. Um, so yeah, while listening to my group, I felt like how similar we all were. And you know, at home, I feel, oh my God, I'm such a loser. I mean, I think of it every day, and I can't do it. But, you know, here I felt like I'm, we're all okay, you know, we're yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, beautiful, yeah. Let's see, hi. Oh, um, I think um, some, this is distracting me. Um, it's good for all the people who can't be here. Um, I, I, I think that the thing that stood out for me, and I think it was sort of a, a bit of a theme, um, you weren't the people I was talking to, um, is that uh, it, there was something in the holding on to something working out a certain way, and once that, whether we wanted it we wanted to let go or circumstances kind of forced the issue. There was this realization that, um, and again, this was more my experience and a little bit of others, um, that there was this realization that other things opened up or there were many other opportunities or ways things could go um, that sort of became more apparent after that letting go happened, that that, that yeah. singular focus was um, preventing um, from seeing. Mm 
Yeah, that's really beautiful. We're cultivating this trust, you know, in how things unfold with their own logic, not just our view of it. Go ahead. Um, yes, I like the um, this second question you asked about, um, you know, did something that we were wanted to happen not happen, and how did we feel? Um, versus the previous question was just a view that changed, right? Um, and I have a lot of, I'm in the process of trying to find a new job, and so I have a lot of interviews that then don't, you know, I don't get the job. And so I'm going through that process a lot of building up, this is going so well, this is perfect, things you've imagined in the future, it's all going to happen, and then it, and then it doesn't happen. And I think I'm doing a good job of letting go, but I wonder if I'm really letting go, I'm realizing maybe even just in today's process that I create, or am I just creating another story? Like, oh, that job wouldn't have been good anyways, they're gonna fail, all these other, am I just creating another story that I then cling to versus really letting go? Mm-hmm. And I guess that really love some, some comment on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a great question, you know, for you to investigate. If you, if you need to run them down and, you know, say, oh, they were no good after all, that, that's shading over into another view that you're making up to, you know, maybe look, just letting in that, that you'd worked up some, you'd seen some good things in it, and it's, 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 it hurt, you know, it hurt a little. But maybe you can let it go a little more by just being a little more clear that, you know, there's still the good things in yourself that you were bringing forth to think of offering to that, and you can offer them somewhere else. So maybe there's a way to take the good out of the experience without needing to, you know, fall into now making a bad, a negative view out of it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we were, she was in my group, we were talking about, am I, can everyone hear me? Yes? Okay. Um, one of the things I talked about was I got married really young. I was 23, and I'd been friends with him since I was 16, and I grew up with the whole, you stay married forever, the only people that get divorced are people that didn't try, and I had this my whole life, and for years, 14 of them actually, I had this idea that we have to stay married. And we have this history together, and I've known him for so long, and, and we have kids. And, and finally I realized the fact that I've known him so long in our history was a good reason to stay friends, but not necessarily a good reason to stay married. And so we kind of made this decision where it was like, well, wait a minute, we, you know, we can still be friends, we just don't have to be married. And so we, we separated, and it's been great for him, it's been great for me, it's been great for the kids. Despite what everyone else said, our lives were going to fall apart and stuff, we've actually managed to have a better relationship. So, you know, that was a, a pretty big shift in thinking. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Just the power of one idea limiting yeah. the possibilities when you could be much more creative when you let that go. Yeah. Anybody else? Sarah, did you have something? No? Okay. Yeah. There was one person in our group who had a very difficult time of thinking of something suffering. And he finally came to it. And I think it's a, it causes tremendous suffering. 
he thought at the time when, it ha when he was suffering that he was a perfectionist, a super perfectionist. And um, he had a real hard time giving that up. And he went in a totally different direction, it turns out, than what he was aiming for in college and made such a big shift, totally, and is very happy now. Thank you. And perfectionism is, it can really um, cause ha such suffering mm -hmm. when you're obsessed with it. And it's a very strong view. It's your view of what is perfect, you know. It's, it's an ideal just taking over. And it's uh, one, a beautiful Zen poem I love talks about ease with imperfection as being one of the... You know, yeah, but imperfection is another view. It's just things are as they are, you know. What happens can ha what can happen happens. Yeah. Hello. Um, so can you all hear me? So what I realized in my group was that I have a lot of clinging and it can be, um, you know, I'm transitioning in terms of jobs as well. So the fear of um, not wanting to lose a job or not wanting to lose a relationship or fear of, oh my gosh, if I lose my job, will I use, lose my home as well? Um, so lots and lots of clinging, and it all stems from fear and this notion that I'm not okay as I am. Mm. So through the practice, if I'm better able to accept what's happening now, mm -hmm. whether I have something or whether I don't or whether it's what I really want... And I think that inner peacefulness um, that I hope to achieve, it's probably going to take years, um, will help me cling less. There's less fear. I'm okay just being me. Mm -hmm. I don't need all these other things to make me better. Mm. I don't know how to get rid of the fear. <laughs> I hope that's part of the process. But I'm seeing those two very intertwined together for mm -hmm. me. So. Well, for, I wouldn't hold it to begin with that you want to get rid of the fear, but just get to know, you know, what is it that you're calling fear? What's the actual sensation changing from moment to moment? Where's the breath? You know, noticing the ideas that the fear is throwing up, noticing whether you're believing them. You know, it's uh, wanting to get rid of something as your f first motive is a, you know, it's, it gives it a power and a solidity and a reality that's greater than what it may actually have. It's a bunch of sensations and a bunch of ideas. So I'm just suggesting that you, you know, instead of making your fear a thing that you need to get rid of, that you look at maybe seeing through it, you know, having it become a little bit more of a transparent bundle of sensations and feelings. We can make things very real by giving them a name and fear of fear. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So we can open this up to general questions about the program or especially about right view or anything that's on your mind. We have a few minutes here. Are you all clear enough on... Oh, go ahead.
Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, could you talk about kind of the balance between um, kind of letting go and not letting your happiness and, and peace be dependent on circumstances along with wanting to improve mm -hmm. circumstances? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that's really the art of the path, you know, is is getting a feeling for when you're pushing too hard, you know, and when when you're trying when you're investing too much in trying to make a specific thing happen, you know, and where, balancing with trusting that if you're cultivating these beautiful qualities of heart that we're talking about, and just open to what's happened. Many of the best things that have happened to me in my life, I could not have planned. You know, and I had no idea that they were going to come to pass, but they've come to pass. So keeping that possibility open, you know, we're not saying just sit home and don't do anything. If you know, if something that you that you're inspired to do occurs to you, give it a try. But it's just another experience that then you can keep your eyes open to how it's working out and what it's costing you in terms of stress and you know, is it is it pushing it's just you get a sense of when you're pushing to try to make something happen that isn't kind of in harmony with the way things are, you know. So there isn't a cut and dried answer for that except that holding that question is a really beautiful way to live. You're both open to something that you don't know about and you're not overly attached to your plans, but you, you have your plans, so you go ahead, you know, see what happens. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Please add a little piece, Kim. Sorry. Sometimes people hear the encouragement in our practice to accept and to be receptive and to just be with things. Uh, they can hear that as passive. And sometimes this question arises, I don't know if that was your intention. Um, and they say, well, don't, can't I do anything? When do I, you know, why shouldn't I respond to something that's harming me or something like that? Um, just to be aware that, that um, passivity was not the Buddha's teaching. It was um, he, he taught a balance of cultivation and letting go. And most likely to become completely free of suffering, we're going to have to do a lot of cultivation and a lot of letting go. <laughs> um, that's my experience, at least. So please don't fall onto one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hi, from listening to your talk, it seems like a lot of suffering also comes from personalizing things. Yes. If I look at the situation, I personalize it, mm -hmm. it causes suffering. But if I don't personalize it, it doesn't really cause suffering. So I was wondering, what is the right view based on the Dharma practice on the self? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, that's a very great question. It's... Um, it's a really fundamental thing to begin to investigate is what is, when are you, what is this feeling of being yourself, you know, of having a self. There's a difference between simply being a self, you know, you have your unique perspective, no one else has exactly your perspective or your experience, and then there's starting to make ideas about it. I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person, you know, and so the Buddha definitely teaches that it's not skillful to make self out of things. You know, to do that activity of identifying 
you know, I'm an American and that means blah, 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 or I'm a bad person, or I'm no good at this. When you start making statements about yourself in general, you're making generalizations that are really not referring to anything because life is this flow of moments and some moments there might be anger and some moments there might be joy and happiness and sleeping and eating and what does it mean to say I'm angry you know that that's making an unnecessary generalization so that's one level to look at you can take things personally in the way that you can think it's just you who's having this suffering you can think, take things personally in thinking that you have an unrealistic, you ought to have an unrealistic degree of control over what happens. You know, we say this is my body, but can you stop it from getting ill? Can you stop it from getting old? No. So what's the point in dwelling on how this is mine? You know, when something is mine, that, that generally implies you have some, some control over it. But... You know, not so much with many of these things that we say are mine. And so the more you emphasize in your mind the mindness or the meanness of things, the more you're setting yourself up for, you know, some kind of rub with the way things turn out to be. But the Buddha also didn't, you know, say there is no self. It's, he wasn't interested in these metaphysical statements about whether there is a thing or not a thing. You know, he talked about himself in the first person. I tried this, I tried that, I went there, I said this to him. You know, he had a very strong, integrated, healthy, what, you know, Western psychology would consider a very healthy, integrated ego in terms of being able to, you know, take responsibility for his actions and manage his life. But he wasn't hung up on this question of who am I and what am I. He said that's not a useful question. Just put it aside and look at suffering or not suffering. So the more you're taking up that question, the more you're taking up a view that really isn't helpful into the question of not suffering. Mm -hmm. Have anything to add to that, Kim? Okay. It's a big question. You'll run into it a lot in Dharma practice. Yes. Thinking about the clinging after all the reflections today, listening to you, it seems to me that a lot of it is the way we grew up, how we were educated, what we saw, reactions to certain situations. So if this happens, you're supposed to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think it gets so ingrained, mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. at least in me, um, that it, it's hard sometimes to question it. Mm -hmm. It is. It, it is very hard. It but, is very hard. But yes. I, I, I've seen, and, and there's some kind of clinging that is harder to get rid of. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen that I've been able to let things go, some of them, but some others is like, my, I mean, I, I know I'm clinging. Oh, yes. I cannot let them go. It's, yes. It's well, you right. know, we describe this and there's, you can't help but somehow make it sound, have people hear it like, well, I ought to be able to just go home and do this. But no, 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 no. This is difficult, you know. You begin by getting the idea that this is a way to even conceive of possibly being able to look this way, you know. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and I, you know, there's many, many things that I don't even see and things I see that I'm clinging to and things I stop clinging to and then I cling to it again and you know but it's 
it's not, it's not even so useful to hold it that I'm going to go home and just, you know, let go of all this stuff. It's just, it's an orientation that can make life interesting, <laughs> you know. It's, it makes life uh, more joyful, more fruitful, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's a ray of hope because, yeah, okay, there is something I can learn to do about this. You know, it's like having a way versus not having a way. You know, the way of trying to get the world to behave according to how your family taught you it should, that's not really much of a way. <laughs> you know, that's a way of a lot of frustration. But this way is a way, even if it's a slow and gradual and, you know, spotty way that takes a long time. So it's like knowing you're heading in the right direction. You know, even if you, no matter how far you get, it doesn't matter. You're knowing that you're going in the right direction, in a fruitful direction. Don't make suffering out of the fact that the path is slow. You know, that would be unfortunate. Any other? Yes. One, oh, and one over there. Do we have a mic somewhere? Yes. Okay. I think I'm a little confused about the concept of the self, mm -hmm. that there is no self. Um, well, we're not saying there's no self. We're saying certain I'm, ways of relating to it lead to more suffering and certain ways of relating to that whole issue lead to less suffering. Yeah, like to me, all emotions mm -hmm. belong to like I'm happy, mm -hmm. I'm sad, mm -hmm. I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. It's like there's an I in it, and there's a self that's feeling it. Well, you can just keep looking at that, you know. Maybe that's a linguistic thing. You know, we always put I in there. What if you say there, suffering is happening? Just, you know, it, there are um, some ways in which language conditions our experience to a great degree. Without, don't get hung up on there is no self or not. You know, that's, the Buddha said, don't, don't get hung up on that. You know, and he, and he said that as a person, just, you know, I'm telling you, don't get hung up on that. He uses the I word, you know. But, but look at how you're using that perception. Sometimes there's a perception of self. Sometimes there can be a perception of no self. Sometimes there can just be experience without having to refer to who it is that's experiencing it. You know, the, the more you practice all kinds of different relationships and experiences around the self and so forth will come and go. You know, and not any one of them is the way it is. But the fact that it can be different ways at different times can start to loosen up our sense that it's somehow important to hang on to the idea that these emotions are happening to me. You know, it's more important that they're happening and what does it feel like that they're happening? You can have a whole discussion about what does it feel like to be sad? You know, and it's probably pretty, it may be quite the same for many of us what that feels like. So holding on to it as mine, maybe it makes you feel more isolated than realizing this is the common human experience of sadness, for example. So again, it's purely pragmatic of what, when is it useful to, you know, it's useful 
you know, you're responsible. We're, we're working with the path. We're saying we're responsible for our actions. You know, our actions have consequences. So we're not going to an idea of not-self in contrast to an idea of self. We're saying, put those ideas aside. They're not so helpful. Okay? I wanted to let Kim uh, say anything if she has anything to add to this discussion. I just a question. Okay, well, we're actually coming to the end of the day here, so unless there's a. Oh, I remember now okay. what it is <laughs> the question. Um, what, um, we, I was brought up that you ask questions, that mm-hmm. asking questions is almost more important than the answers. Mm-hmm. And um, I notice that when I don't get the answers, I'm always, at, you know, I feel sort of frustrated at times, and that this who am I, blah, 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 has been constantly thrown at me. And um, I just wanted to know what the Buddhist attitude is about asking questions that like that, because I love what you said about letting go of certain questions. Well, there's a particular sutta where he says, Wandering in the thicket of views is asking, who am I? Who was I? Who will I be? You know, all these, all these questions around, who am I? That that's really not a skillful question. That the question is, is this suffering? This is suffering. This is craving, clinging. This is not suffering. You know, that's what's useful. And so it's, I, it can be frustrating not to have definite answers to these questions, but it's also a lot of suffering to keep trying to ask these questions that actually have no definite answers. So there's some suffering around continuing to be engaged with these questions that are beside the point, according to Buddhism. Sometimes when you, um, like you can go somewhere, you can't go somewhere, and you're constantly going back and Uh forth, and it produces, there's no question I've suffered in trying to make the decision. So you're saying that to take the position of not suffering, it doesn't matter really which one you pick. The fact that you want to pick one means they're both good choices. you're You're trying to fixate on something that is not fixed. It's like, is this bit of the river the river, or is this bit of the river the river? You know, let's go argue and kill each other over that. You know, no, let's not. You know, it's flowing. It's constantly changing. You're this, you're that. You have emotions, you have feelings, you have sensations, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I want to pick up that um, one thing you said in the process of your question was something about what is the Buddhist attitude about asking questions. And um, actually questions are really encouraged. That's why we have this whole question period um, but like, uh, like everything on the path, uh, we can ask, what is the intention behind that? What is the motivation for asking that question? Um, and, you know, is this question going, potentially leading me toward or away from suffering? And the teacher can help with that too, maybe reframing or uh, asking you a counter question to help you shape what it is. But, um, I hope no one will think that they shouldn't be asking questions, um, but maybe the response will be, oh, that's not a useful question, <laughs> you know? Um, but certainly we're encouraged to um, investigate 
investigate in a wise way. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. That's a that very important conclusion to today on right view. Yes, you can ask questions. <laughs> it's just the Buddha's. There's actually a whole book that uh, one of our teachers has written called "Skill in Questions," where he's gone through and examined how the Buddha handles all kinds of different questions, and you know which ones are how he answers how and why, and which ones he says, well, that question itself is actually not so skillful. So it's very interesting. Okay, I think we need to stop now. Uh, I wanted to remind you about the possibility of being paired up with a buddy. If you want to do that, email the course address. Okay, the one you get your mails from. And I'll accumulate a list of people who want to be paired up. So far, I don't have enough responses to pair anybody up. And also, there was a request about possible carpooling from San Francisco. So I'd like to suggest that people who are interested in carpooling from anywhere meet out there after the meeting and see if, see if anything gels, okay? And if you have any more questions about the program or anything, just come up afterwards. And enjoy your month of working with Right View, and we'll see you on November 22nd for starting to look at the intentions that flow from our views. Thank you. Have a great month.